You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. Welcome back to the Tech Heads F1 podcast. I'm your host, Bryson Sullivan, joined as always by my excellent co-host, Molly and Dr. Obbs. How are we today, guys? I'm doing good. How are you? It's been an exciting weekend of racing, and I'm excited for another weekend of racing. So it's it's going good. Yeah, that was a really good uh, Monaco Grand Prix. It got quite exciting there at the end when it started raining. I'm sure we'll talk about that, but really looking ahead to Barcelona now. Yeah, I mean, I think Monaco obviously has this incredibly bad rap of having boring races, and, and by and large, they are, but this weekend was actually pretty exciting. We had a pretty fun qualifying session as well, which we'll get into. But speaking of Monaco, I think probably the first thing we should talk about was the wave yellow flags incident uh, with the marshals with Victor Martins in the F2 race, a situation where I think it may have been Jack Doon who crashed up at the top of Massonet, and it was a situation where there were double waved yellows, and Martins was coming out of the pits and trying to catch up with the safety car queue. He did slow down versus, you know, unadulterated racing speeds, but the speeds at which he approached the marshals was was pretty, pretty scary. And he got very close to them. I'm not sure if you guys saw that. Yeah, that was scary. Yeah, it was, it was definitely scary. It was, and I, this one was really close. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah. know, we saw how close he, he got to the marshals. But do we do we know in Formula 2, sorry for my ignorance, is it like Formula 1 where they also have the, the screen on their wheels that will flash whenever they have yellow flags, red flags and things like that as well? No, I, I, I'm not sure about that either. Um, I mean, obviously, their, their wheel technology is a bit different from Formula One. Um, even though Formula One has standardized LCD screens and software, you know, the wheel itself, it can be customized in, in many possible ways. Formula Two isn't like that. It's a spec series with the Delara chassis. And as maybe as a cost-saving measure, they're not going to have all the bells and whistles that, that F1 has. But I think the reason why I wanted to bring this up is just because in a double wave for yellow situation, you're supposed to be able to slow down and potentially be able to stop if the situation dictates it. And I feel like we're getting a trend in racing, you know, Formula 2 and Formula 1 as well, where drivers are going through double wave yellows and really not being in a in a dynamically consistent position to be able to stop. I, I think of, uh, you know, Pierre Gasly at Japan last year as well. So I'm just wondering, maybe there can be some tweaks going forward to improve the safety profile of, of those situations. I was just going to add, I last I was aware, the F2 wheels that are spec did have the LCD screen on them. I don't know their capability for displaying the yellow, but the wheels last I was aware, they do have that screen in the middle. I'm making a screen shape with my fingers like our <laughs> listeners can see that, but they do have the screen in the middle akin to the Formula One wheels. Very good. Very good. So, I mean, I think that was probably the most scary part of, of the weekend, but we had an incredible qualifying session. I think one of the things that makes Monaco so special is because you just simply can't overtake. And so the qualifying is that much more important. And as we were looking at that develop, we saw, you know, Ocon on pole, Alonso on pole, and then Verstappen later. It was an extremely exciting build up to that. I think from a technical perspective, looking at some of the telemetry traces and also one of the excellent visualizations that uh, Formula Attic put together based on GPS data 
data that really showed in detail where people were making up time and, and losing it. I thought that was a very interesting way to look at the relative strengths and weaknesses of the drivers and cars. Given how slow the average speed is in Monaco, any top speed advantage that you know, Red Bull had was largely negated. There were some some areas where it was beneficial, but a lot of that was made up by drivers and getting very cozy with the barriers as well, which is pretty fun. Yeah, I was talking to a couple people and I said, you know, Max kissing the wall and getting pole was really like Ross Chastain's Hail Melon, but the F1 version of it where Ross rode the wall and passed a bunch of cars because it enabled him to keep some more speed. And it was like Max hitting the wall had he deviated from his line or braked so he wouldn't kiss the wall meant he would have probably lost traction and lost time effectively. But he hit it at such a right angle that when we talked about it last time, it was just like skipping around just kind of skipped and kept going and it helped propel him forward and he didn't have to give up on any speed or any line that would affect his lap and I was like hey that's the F1 version of the hail melon I don't know what we call it here but it, it was giving me the same vibes as uh as Ross Chastain yeah and it's it's really exciting to watch these drivers hustle the cars around Monaco I mean I think the first time I really noticed this was probably 2020 when Lewis was was driving. That was the W11 at that time, right? And it just hustling the car around the track. But even this time with the W14B that we had, same thing. It was really hustling the car around the track. Max was doing it. Fernando, like you've just got and Ocon did it. I unfortunately haven't had a chance to watch the onboard of Ocon's uh, qualifying lap yet. I need to go back and see that. But you can really see the drivers like just wrestling the car around the track. And Max was wrestling it so hard that like you said molly he, he kissed the wall a few times there but it's yeah. those tight margins which is where they make up the time they make up quite a lot of time there. yeah i mean formula one is a constructor series it's, it's unique in motorsport in that people are generally building the cars and, and changing them every race weekend so many times we're reliant on the car performance and the the performance of the engineers back at the factory to dictate how fast you go monaco is one of those rare places where the driver makes up a, a lot more of the difference proportionally than it might at, at other situations and then yeah i mean lewis is qualifying and, and monaco is kind of insane you know three laps all of them under pressure uh if he didn't put it together he would have fallen through so very excited qualifying, but also led to a pretty interesting race. I mean, yeah. the the final results probably, you know, not totally unexpected considering who was there. But honestly, that race could have gone very differently given the jeopardy introduced by the rain and some mm -hmm. potentially high leverage strategy decisions that were made by some teams and specifically Aston Martin. I mean, we had more overtakes in that race than, uh, than the last race. And it was a, a generally not the most boring race ever, aside from F1 taking over the TV direction, which was excellent. But what do you guys think about about just some of the, the race itself and, and any details there. Yeah, the, the changeover point of when do we go and what do we go to with the rain was probably my highlight. And watching the teams try the full wet, the inter, the medium. <laughs> Um, and then also the teams that still strategically chose to follow their plan and pit their car, even though there was impending rain, really stuck out to me too. There were some teams that still chose to pit their car that was on a hard strategy to take their next tire compound two to three laps before rain was expected and it was starting to increase in intensity and effectively hurt their car that they chose to do that with and and maybe affected their result which was kind of surprising it was like are we are we watching the weather guys like why why are we bringing a car down and putting a going hard mediums when you could like maybe tough it out for a lap or two to see what's going to happen but that was kind of like one of the big things that stuck out to me and then i was also very pleased with the amount of overtakes it seemed like the rain being the big 
big factor to bring the excitement. There was still a lot going on for Monaco. Yeah, and and I think the other thing that made it quite interesting was uh, watching the tires and how long they were able to last because that yeah. was kind of the big thing is that, you know, Max was able to go as long as he did on his tires, but he went through an intense graining phase. Like when you look mm-hmm. at the telemetry, the bottom started to fall out of the mediums and then it just like came back to life. So, and you also had Fernando with his hards as well. If you look at the telemetry, he also had a bit of a graining phase. It wasn't as bad as the mediums. I think I saw it as well on Lewis's tires when I was looking at the telemetry, there was some graining as well and then it kind of came back to life. So that was quite interesting, but that's really what enabled them to be able to go as long as they did and then be able to make the decision to go to the inters, right? Because if you did not have the tire life, then you would have had to have made a choice just simply because your tires were gone to go to another heart, you know, hard or medium or whatever. And then, oh, here comes the rain, got to pit again for an inter. Yeah, it was really interesting because Alpine asked Gasly, how are you doing? We want a box. Like, we're going to box you. And he goes, no, no, I'm fine. I'm still on pace. Like, my tires feel good. I got through my graining. Keep me out. And they called him in two laps before the rain and then had to call him back in for enters, which was really interesting. It does remind me a little bit of that slightly comical moment in uh, the Russian GP, I think it was in 2021, where the yeah. engineers are coming in, talking to Lance Stroll and saying, can you can you stay on these tires? And Lance yells back emphatically, yes, I can stay out on these, these dry tires. And literally two seconds later, he was at the wall. But no, the driver makes a huge amount of difference. And you know, all, all credit to Max for being able to hold on to those medium tires for as long as he did. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Bernie Collins did a, a piece for F1 recently, looking at the actual lap times as the race went on and actually seeing it in a numerical sense where the crossover point was, lap 52, 53, something like that. But being able to hold on that long was incredibly beneficial. Obviously, Aston Martin, you know, going to pit for the, the hard to slick tires instead of the intermediates kind of let them off the hook to a degree, but uh, Max suddenly earned that win. But I think one of the things that was surprising about Monaco is that even though it's not a great track for testing upgrades, we did actually see some teams make some pretty significant changes. Mercedes is obviously chief among them with, you know, finally abandoning the, the zero pod concept for something more conventional. But we did see a couple of other things up and down the field, Alpine sort of deepened the water slides in their side pods. It was a, a bit more like Aston Martin, not quite as extreme as Aston Martin, but it's there. And also we saw that for the first time this season, a team besides Ferrari trying to use the aerodynamic slot gap separators on the front wing. As you guys remember, Mercedes brought this design to the USGP in Austin, where they use the slot gap separators, which are normally there to prevent the elements of the front wing from touching each other at high speed. They used an excessive number of them and shaped them aerodynamically dynamically to generate more outwash on the front wing. That was something they never actually raced that season, and they didn't even race it this season, even though it's definitely legal now. Ferrari was the team that actually brought that to the track, and Haas was the first team that we've seen actually trying that as well. Maybe it's not surprising that Haas is trying it and Ferrari tried it. You know, they have some similar ideologies in the philosophy of their car, but those were some of the, the things that I saw. I don't know if you guys saw any other technical things from Monaco. Yeah, there were the Alpine stuck out to me and then the slot gap separators. I think there was a slew of things that that stuck out and we'll we'll probably get into those, especially with the Mercedes wide pod and and some of the other stuff that we saw with the floors, especially. The one thing it's like kind of upgrade related, but what did you guys think of the wet tire that didn't need a tire blanket? Speaking of like new things that came to Monaco. 
Yeah, was it? I think it was Sergio Perez in his final pit stop was the one who put on the wet tires. And I initially thought that he was doing that as a sort of a, a guinea pig experiment to determine whether or not there's a the sufficient track condition to justify that, you know, to see what Max would do. But then I listened to his onboards and he was the one who was calling for it. He was the one who was like, no, no, I want wets. I want wets. This is this is very, you know, treacherous out here. So I think they seem to, to do fine. I know Pirelli has a, a difficult job in general, providing tires for Formula One. And then there's this push to gradually phase out tire warmers and eventually it will involve the slicks, you know, not having tire warmers as well. But the first stage of that process is introducing these new wet tires, which are supposed to not require tire warmers and also have better water rejection characteristics. Yeah. I, I didn't hear any complaints about them and they were actually used on the track as yeah. opposed to what's normally the case. So it, it can't be all bad. So th- there, there are really two phases to this uh, this fun uh, tech upgrade season in, in Monaco. One of them was just actually seeing the new W14B, as you mentioned. I know some people will say it's not really a B-spec car because in order to have a B-spec car, they need a new chassis and they can't change the chassis because of the cost cap and everything else. But we're calling it a W14B. Yeah, this is as close as you, you can get to a B-spec without a rehomologation. So. Uh, there there were so many changes and obviously the changes have to work within the constraints of the mechanical hard points of the existing car. They changed some of the things under the hood as far as the cooling configuration. I mean, the, the main points obviously were the wider side pod that wasn't really like any other car specifically. It had certainly inspirations from other teams, maybe Alpine and, and Aston Martin to a degree, but didn't have anywhere near the, the type of undercut that some other side pods had. It wasn't as wide as a Ferrari. And so it seems like iteration zero or perhaps iteration one of a new development direction that at a minimum wasn't a step backwards. That was the one fear that kept people from ditching the zero pod design uh, last season and and over the winter was that if they totally changed their concept, they would take a a step backwards, which is entirely possible. They managed to avoid that. So at a minimum, it gives them a good base to work with. But the side pod design was was interesting, but also probably one of the the more exciting things was the change in the front suspension. You know, Mercedes has been dealing with uh, a lot of issues relative to some of their rivals. And one of the things that we saw Red Bull features heavily in their front suspension design is an anti-dive geometry. Obviously, you can argue that there are aerodynamic benefits to that as well. And, and there are as far as, you know, neutralizing some of the upwash from the front wing. But there are mechanical benefits as well to running a front suspension where the inboard pickup points to the upper wishbone are very offset in a, a vertical sense. And so not only did Mercedes move that front wishbone upwards in the mounting point relative to where it was before, but also moved it backwards. So so both of those things improved the anti-dive angle, which is pretty impressive. The drivers didn't complain about it. They didn't seem to have any problems with it. So I just said before, that's a that's a, a, a net benefit. But we're hoping to see that actually has benefits in terms of front to rear balance as, as well as tire degradation. There are a number of things that could be improved by that. One of the other things that was very noteworthy about the new wide pod design, I like <laughs> Molly calling it that, was that they weren't able to move this, the upper side impact structure because of uh, homologation rules yeah. for the chassis and, and you know cost cap again. It's funny to me and not funny because it's a, a safety structure, but it's just kind of funny that they can't move it or reincorporate it without rehomologating when there actually really isn't a true crash test for that side impact structure in the regulations. It's like it just has to be – it basically it has to be this. It has to be located within this legality box and must withstand this. There's no true side impact structure that te- – side impact structure – safety test at homologation that tests that. So I was kind of like surprised, not only at that, but then it was like, well, why they should be able to move it. You don't test for it. Like it's just a location change. You don't test for that 
cis location. So like, why, why can't they move it? But that, that just kind of is like, and I don't want to say it's like important. No, but it's important to understand about that too. At least in my opinion as for like, yeah, they have to go back through homologation, but I was like, the homologation doesn't have anything for this other than it has to be here and here. And it's got to be this type of cis. Yeah. And it's, it's also a standardized structure as well. Ripple Technologies makes it. So I, I can understand the argument, but you know, we know how Formula One operates and not all of it is always justifiable. But but one of the consequences of that, of not being able to move that structure, is that we now have that cis wing that was previously there uh, covering it. It's now kind of been integrated into the sort of upper part of their of their new side pod. And they also have sort of a, a drop down you know, vein there and also a sticky uppy bit. Uh, that Sam Collins would, would mention on the floor as well that we can talk about in a second. But it, what's interesting to me is that when you're forced into a part of the design space that you aren't expecting to be in, yes, that wasn't what your original intent would be. You probably wouldn't design it that way if you ever you know, had the free choice. But given that they did do that, I'm wondering if there's some sort of ways to exploit that Maybe find something that people didn't expect to be that actually is there. Some vortex structure, some way to exploit, you know, some outwash in the front of the iPod that actually proved beneficial. Kind of like the way the Y250 vortex did in the 2009 regulations. No one knew it was going to be there initially, but now that it's there and it was a very powerful tool for a long time. Do you have any thoughts, uh, Dr. Ops? Yeah, I mean, uh, on the winglet that's down by the uh, the the chassis, the mid chassis. That was a really interesting one <laughs> when I first saw it. I thought. Okay, this is uh, is clearly like an outwashing winglet, and I start thinking, well, all right, here we go, barge boards now. But um, <laughs> once <laughs> once I started actually doing some research, it's it's quite trick what Mercedes has done. You know, they mm-hmm. have uh, it fits in with the regulation volume for the mid chassis, and uh, their mid chassis is obviously uh, a bit slimmer in the Y direction than the regulation box. And so then this allows them to actually put that. And I was talking to a couple of people who gave me a little bit of a hint and they're actually in F1. And what they said is, uh, hey, hey, go look at that that regulation box and see what the regulations say. And when I went and looked, there's like nothing in it. It's completely open. You can have any radius you want. It's It's mental. And this is the same regulation box that they use actually for the volumes that are behind the halo and around the cockpit structures where they're putting all Mm -hmm. these cool winglets and things. And the reason why they can do that is because it's basically unregulated. So this is why they were allowed to, to do that. But on the flip side, it has to still stay within that regulation box. So it can only go so far outboard, which is why it's not really a barge board when people call it a barge board, because it's not that outwashy, but yeah. But, and even so that's, that's the thing that, that struck me as, as being most, you know, not potentially problematic, but most concerning to me, when you see something that's that heavily aerodynamically loaded, that much camber in the airfoil profile, but it's so close to that sidewall, there's a huge amount of diffusion happening in that widening gap on the backside of that. There's an extreme adverse pressure gradient there. And so it would be very impressive to be able to keep that flow actually attached because if it detaches and it's just a, a pocket of you know not moving air, it's not really doing anything. So you have to actually design that shape that you're looking for and then it has to not separate. <laughs> it has to be air dynamically valid. So that was a pretty cool thing. I think the only final thing I would mention before we get to the, talking about the parade of floors that we saw uh, over the course of the weekend, the final thing I'll say is that Mercedes was experimenting with a different design to their cannon cooling exits on top of their engine cover. We know that Mercedes has this very deep sort of hulking shoulders to their engine cover that seems to be able to guide the losses from the cockpit down towards the the rear wing and away from the beam wing in that slot in between the two of them. But they seem to actually, you know, use a slightly different design only for 
for FP2 in Monaco. They reverted back to the previous design for qualifying in the race, obviously. But it was just something that was kind of cool. Like it could be something they're experimenting with to increase mass flow rate to the cooling system, or it could just be a, a shift in aero development or aero design direction kind of like what, what Alpine maybe has or maybe even Red Bull to a degree. That's one I'm going to keep my eye out for going forward because I, I caught that too and that was really interesting for their cooling outlets. So I'll be keeping an eye on that to see if uh, they do move to that fully or if they, it never shows up again. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on it. So I think obviously we know how Monaco is. We know that given the lack of grip on the surface and given the perpetual potential for crashing into the arm core barriers, which are never far away, there's a very high likelihood that at some point in the weekend, you're going to crash into the wall. And one of the things that we love about Monaco and especially the Monaco marshals, by and large, they don't care about your floor being secret. They will take your car and hoist it 30 feet, no, 80 feet into the air if it means they can get it out of the way in the appropriate amount of time. And I checked, I think, over the course of the weekend out of the top, you know, four teams, I think every single driver hit the barriers enough to cause damage, except for maybe Max. But he he hit Portier in the race. It didn't damage the car, but he did hit no. it. And then and then Fernando. Fernando didn't didn't hit the barriers either. So pretty much every single other person did hit the barriers at some point. At Mercedes, you know, Lewis hit the barriers at Mirabeau and in FP3. So we got to see the W14 floor. Then, you know, before that, Carlos Sainz crashed the swimming pool. And so we saw the Ferrari floor. And then Sergio Perez, you know, just had a crash at the worst possible time in the weekend. Q1 in qualifying. Just, you could not imagine a, a worse mis- mistake to make in that situation. I'm sure he'll tell you exactly the same thing. And he's very upset about it as well. But his crash at that point also gave us a chance to look at the RP19 floor. And there was just a lot of discussions about that. A lot of discussions around the complexity and the, the error development of each of the teams. We know that Red Bull has one of the most powerful floors, if not the most powerful floor on the entire grid. I have my own thoughts about some of the things that we saw, but I want to give the other guys a chance to say what you saw. I probably studied the floors way too much and looked at them uh, for, way, for way too long. <laughs> we were talking about it a bit, Molly, definitely. But the, I guess starting with maybe the Ferrari floor, I mean, it, it certainly seemed like a bit plain Jane, I guess, when I first saw it, I thought, okay, well, it's definitely more developed than it was when we saw it early in 2022. But comparing, you know, Ferrari, Mercedes, and Red Bull, it was certainly a, a stark difference between the three. I think Mercedes maybe somewhere in the middle if I was going to, you know, talk about complexity and obviously the Red Bull looking a bit more complex. And and I made a comment about, you know, this is this is this is why Red Bull is out front or whatever, you know, just one of those little things. And people were commenting about, whoa, how can you say you don't have aerodynamic eyes? But it was just true. Don't. But the thing is that when you have complex profiles in anything, it doesn't matter if we're talking about ground effect race cars or you're talking about airplanes, right? When you have complex shapes, you develop complex flow fields. And complexity in flow fields is only something you do if you really understand how those flow fields are interacting because they become very three-dimensional. And that tells me that you have a good understanding of what's going on. So I think that's the main thing that sort of stuck out to me was that it looked like Red Bull has a bit of a, a, a you know, really good understanding of what's going on with the flow field within their uh, their floor. Yeah. And I was just going to say, even even in that situation, all of the things that we would point to in a Mercedes floor or the Ferrari floor, the way the keel and the boat, you know, shape is in, a, in terms of like lateral expansion and forward facing steps and backward facing steps, all those things that we think of as critical to defining a modern developed floor, we saw in the Red Bull first anyway. 
You know, we, we saw these things with Red Bull prior to that, either in the RB18 in its original specification or with your RB19 now. And so they're already ahead of the game in terms of some of those basic areas. I think one of the things that was kind of a question mark last year was obviously teams had to deal with this porpoising issue and trying to figure out a way around it. And one of the things that Red Bull seemed to have with the RB18 that they've kind of gone back on in, in, in this current iteration of their car is that they had a very gradual, large radius kick to the diffuser. It's very smooth and sort of gentle in that sense. And even though that might not give you the maximum possible like suction, you know, at a particular point in the floor, it does give you a much more benign handling characteristic. It would allow you to run the car lower potentially, and not worry about the floor stalling because of an extreme, you know, average pressure gradient or anything else like that. What's interesting about the RB19 is they're confident enough in their understanding of what the flow is doing to actually go back to a, a sharper corner there in the diffuser kick. To actually, and it seems like it actually has a compound curve with more than one specific point of of curvature, but it seems like it's one of those situations where you're you're kind of pushing the limit of what you can get away with with the floor performance. But if you understand it well enough to actually do that, you can get the performance that the other people are chasing that you you have and, and, and they don't have. So it did suggest to me a high degree of confidence in what Rebel is doing with their philosophy. But also, as you said, Dr. Robs, the, the complex shapes are, they don't guarantee performance. I can come up with a complex shape tomorrow with no specific justification that might look cool. But the point is, there's actually reasons behind it in controlling the flow structures. One of the things that I thought was kind of cool about the Red Bull floor specifically is that there are vertical height variations in the roof of the floor that are operating in conjunction with lateral changes in the cross-sectional area as well. So at a point where maybe the keel and the sidewall of, of the Venturi Tunnel kind of come closer together laterally, you'll also see the roof coming down a little bit as well in conjunction with that. So it, it really gave an indication of, as you said, a three-dimensional mentality to describing how the floor works. And, and the Mercedes seems a lot more like the RB18 floor that we saw last year. A lot of very you know smooth surfaces, very con continuous uh, shape that we had for the roof of the under of the Venturi tunnels. But they also did feature some of the key things that we saw from last year's Red Bull, which is you know two or three backward facing steps on the back part of the boat, you know, the keel area, and then a few things with the diffuser shape as well. So it just seems like Red Bull's a, a little bit ahead of the of the game right now. You said something that triggered my mind, and it's that last year, first time we saw the RB18 floor, I think was in Monaco, right? When when Perez binned it on the in qualifying, and even that floor, when you go back and look at it, the roof does have this sort of curvature to it. So the so the curvature that we see in the RB19 compared to the curvature that we see in the RB18 is different, but they're still the same philosophy of having a curved roof, basically. This is also one of the reasons why when during the course of the year, they were talking about raising the diffuser throat, there was some speculation that this might not affect Red Bull as much as it would other teams because Red Bull already had a curved higher diffuser throat than some of the other teams because mm. of this. And and I guess while we're on the topic, I, I put out a theory out there about the Red Bull floor and these kind of semi-elliptical, or not semi-elliptical, but semi-circular curvatures and profiles that you have in the roof of the floor and how it's very close to the wall of the boat, so the center section of the floor. And in this section, you know, my theory is essentially that you're basically housing the fence vortices in this gully. So, it's almost like like the opposite of what Mercedes is doing with the vortices that are coming off of their 
halo in their cockpit. They are housing vortices, but they're housing like bad vortices that they want to send and in turbulence they want to send other places. You know, gullies and, and channels are used to house things. We know that. That's that's not a new aerodynamic principle. So if there is a gully in the floor, what is the main structure in the floor that you would want to house? defense vortices. So I don't think it's a it's a big step to assume that potentially that's what they're doing. But when I start doing a little bit more research into why they might start doing that, we know that these vortices that are in the floor are inherently unstable. And one of the biggest issues that aerodynamics have is to maintain the integrity and the health of those vortices as it travels the length of the floor. It may not go fully all the way to the diffuser, but the, the further you can go with it, the more downforce you can get essentially. And when they burst and blow up, it actually robs you of volume in your floor as well. So it's very negative. And one way to support those vortices is actually to house them because you support them with basically the pressure gradients that they're experiencing. So you get way less of this kind of like axial deceleration because you're, you're channeling and funneling the vortex, which is one of the ways that a vortex dissipates is when it suddenly sort of axially kind of slows down. And the other one is when they grow in, in diameter, then they start to lose their shape and the circulation and they become very lossy as well and they dissipate. So another way to do that is to support them with a, a curvature, like more boundary. And mm-hmm. so that's, I, that's what I think they're doing. I could be totally off. I ran it past a couple of people that are in F1 that would know and they didn't laugh me out of the chat. So I think <laughs> I think I'm on to something maybe. A couple of them actually went quiet, which tells me that I am on to something. So let's see. <laughs> no, but I mean that that makes total sense. I mean the reason why vortices are so beneficial is that when they are spinning and they're tightly packed to have really low pressure in them, like very, very low pressure. That's exactly what you're trying to generate under the floor is suction to suck the car to the ground. And not only that, but they have entrainment properties as well that can be beneficial to when you use them. But yeah, vortex bursting is a really cool phenomenon. It's something that everyone seems to have struggled with, you know, developing the F-18 fighter aircraft uh, back in the day for the United States. They had a beautiful leading edge vortex, vortex generators to help augment the lift of the wing provided fantastic, you know, stall performance, but they had vortex bursting problems precisely like the type you're describing. And there's so much buffeting and turbulence that was introduced when that happened. It was actually causing structural problems with the vertical stabilizers. They had to add these additional vortex generators to be able to strengthen them. So since in F1, you're not allowed to have sticky downy bits that might augment the vortices and might actually, you know, keep them combined and and, and add energy to them. The next best thing is, is to contain them, is to give them places to not necessarily attach to in some, you know, vague sense, but to give them some structure to maintain their integrity for a, a longer period. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if some variant of that explanation is perfectly consistent. And as I said before, the guide vanes at the end of the floor are critical to being able to set up these vortices and bring them downstream. We know that Red Bull's designs for that are, are more complex than some of any any other ones. They use the maximum extent possible of angling the bottom edge of the floor away from the, the Z-axis of the car, sort of curling under on the, the bottom edge. Seems to be able to create an even stronger vortex. There's a limit to how far you can push that. I think one of our F1 uh, references that is about 25 degrees is what you can get away with in regulations. The, the bottom line is there's a high degree of development in Red Bull's floor. And I'm sure all the other teams are pouring over glorious 
high definition images of the the bottom of the car, and they're employing complex photogrammetry algorithms to back out what that geometry would look like. Now, to be clear, they can't make their own shape based on photogrammetry, reverse engineering the exact shape of the Red Bull floor, but at a minimum, they can at least understand the shape and see what it's trying to do. And it's one of the things I love about Arrow is that seemingly imperceptible small changes in shape can have a, a big impact on what the flow actually does downstream. So very excited about looking to that. We will talk about Spain in a little bit because, you know, the Spanish Grand Prix is actually the most traditional place for applying big upgrades. But overall, we were just having a great weekend seeing this this parade of cars crashing into the into the walls and being able to rely on the F1 tech community to not only provide images of what these cars look like, but to give meaningful and, and sober analysis as to what they might be doing. Those are the main things that I saw on the Red Bull and Mercedes. As I said before, Mercedes might be the middle of the pack, I would say, in terms of the complexity of their floor, but it's definitely an improvement of what they had very, very early on last season. Just just very plain and simple. I think Ferrari is doing their own work. They have their own progress as far as what's going to be coming in the future. They have their own floor and their own bodywork coming in Spain, which we'll talk about. But overall, yeah, it was a very cool intermediate jumping off point for some of the tech developments of the season. And I am looking forward to Spain. So I had a couple observations about floors, but before I make them, I'm going to do my obligatory, just because one team has it doesn't mean you can have it too, copy-paste reminder, because I see a lot of people making the comments about as teams try to reverse engineer the Red Bull floor, at least understand what they're doing. Well, now we're just going to have a bunch of RB19 floors. And in theory, like you could think that that would work, but at the end of the day, it's all about your full package of your car and how everything works together, like you were saying. And just because I have the same floor as you and I I have copy and pasted that feature onto my car from a fast car doesn't mean it's going to work for me because there are enough systematic differences between packaging, between my wheelbase, between my chassis, between the other components of my aerodynamics, my suspension, how the system behaves as a whole, that when I slap that copy paste piece in there, it may not function the same as the team who has it has because you cannot copy and paste their exact system without breaking a few regulations and probably getting really big trouble along the way. So it's one of those things where I see a lot of people saying that we'll just copy the Red Bull Bull floor now. We're going to be fast. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. But I like how you think. The observation like mainly that I had, and this is me being a mechanical engineer with aero and all of that, the big thing that stuck out to me was actually on the Ferrari floor and then seeing it on Mercedes also helped. I started to notice this season that there was maybe a tinge of negative rake kind of sneaking in on some of the cars where this generation car is more rake neutral where we were more positive rake in the past where the front of the plank would be where it struck when we saw the floors. And it this generation is much more neutral. And I was starting to notice we were seeing a little bit of a negative rake start to creep in. I think seeing Ferraris and Mercedes plank wear where we were seeing the strikes I think confirms that to me, at least personally, that we are seeing maybe this trend of negative rake in their setup on a plank side to try and enable getting those critical features low since the function of your ground effect and the performance of your diffuser and all of that good stuff is a function of ride height. They're going to want to try and cater that as low as possible. And to go negative rake, you would do a lower ride height in the rear. So you'd be trying to get the rear of the car close to the ground. And so that's bottoming out, that's striking your plank and all that good stuff. So that was really the one thing that stuck out to me. I was 
that was like a lot of the plank where I was looking at because I, I saw the RB19 was like, oh my God, this thing is insane. It is far beyond my arrow brain. Like I have a decent eye for some arrow and decent mind for it. But I was like, this is a little too advanced. But I was starting to figure out what I could figure out and spent a lot of time studying the plank wear between the three cars because then if you look at the plank wear on the Red Bull, it's a lot more evenly worn across the full plank, which suggests that their platform is incredibly stable, which I think we've been discussing for a while around the tech community is that Red Bull has a really, really stable platform. If you compare it through corners, it's like the same corner, same angle to other cars. The way that it just settles is a lot better than other cars and seeing their plank wear compared to the kind of almost negative raked favored planks of Mercedes and Ferrari, it kind of made sense that, okay, yeah, their platform is definitely more stable, more likely they're able to run a lot lower. We know they're able to run a lot lower from what we've kind of picked up from media reports, studying their car, they can run a lot lower. And so this much more even plank wear across the bottom of the plank really stuck out to me too. And it kind of was like, all right, that's kind of putting two and two together of things that we've seen and been in talking about and studying from photos or, or telemetry in the tech community. We were able to kind of quantify that and qualitatively understand that a little bit more with seeing their floor. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really kind of an, an important thing. It actually ties into our, our previous episode a little bit. If you guys remember, we had J.R. Hildebrand on talking about some of the cool things that they were doing in IndyCar and, and how aero development works in a, in a spec series. And one of the things he actually mentioned was sometimes the aero platform actually worked optimally with a little bit of negative freight yeah. in some situations, which seems a little bit odd. But I mean, given how much that would shift your center of pressure and given how the flow structures are moving around and, and other things, I can understand how that could actually be a solution. So things all kind of coming together yeah. in, in, in a sense. But to your other point about not being able to simply copy geometry and put it on your car and, and automatically guarantee performance, even the most you know canonical version of someone copying a car and gaining performance, which was Force India with their RP20 you know, pink Mercedes, even that car wasn't an exact clone of the previous Mercedes car, the W10. If you look in the fine details as far as the leading edge radius of the side pod inlets and some of the shape of the nose and a few other details with the downwashing part of the side pod on the back end, even their car simply trying to copy everything about the Mercedes and they had access to photogrammetry uh, algorithms and software, even they couldn't exactly copy yeah. the shape and get the performance. They had to make tweaks and modifications to their design to actually derive the lap time out of it. So yep. it just emphasizes the point that you were making. As far as Red Bull and their wear patterns in the plank, we did notice... I think this might have been one, another one of the insights from the, the tech community. The Red Bull seems to either put a coating or paint yep. on their uh, wear plank. And what's interesting about that is it would allow you to have kind of a, a version of FlowViz, but for, for plank wear, and that if you painted most of it black or the majority of it black, and you looked at where it was actually being worn uh, worn away, that would give you some indication of, of where exactly the material is being, being worn away, how it's touching. And as you said, it is exceedingly uniform wear on the plank, which is an indication of very high ride quality. But also, it was actually odd to me how it was mostly the outer edges of the mm -hmm. plank. Normally, yeah. when I think of a structure, it's getting sucked to the ground. I think of it bowing in the middle and the touching point would be right in the center. But what actually seems to be happening, the way they have this floor set up and the way it's mounted to the chassis as far as where the, the flexion points are, the very, very center of the, of the plank isn't actually what's rubbing. It's actually kind of the sides a little bit and a few other things. So there's definitely a lot to unpack from shots looking up at the floors of the cars, not just the, in aero detail in the, in the shape of the floors, but also what the, the wear pattern is. Uh, so I thought that was just as exciting. Yeah, that's that was, like I said, I spent most of my time looking at that once I, I had finished looking at aero features because the, the Ferrari was 
like, okay, here's confirmation of the mouse hole, like the double mouse hole. Okay, they still have a skate. Like, okay, well, wait, this wear pattern on their plank is marginally different from last year. And then saw the Mercedes and, and kind of the same thing. And so I, I spent a lot of time studying that because I, I personally took the most out of looking at plank wear and, and was able to tell a lot about those three cars from it personally. Yeah, and I, I was going to just expand, I guess, on your first point and what we've also been talking about, about copy-paste. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you know, we talked about the pink Mercedes. Good example, right? I mean, it was yeah. a it was a, a, a step faster, but it wasn't the Mercedes. And then we can look at, you know, how we other teams tried to emulate the Red Bull downwashing side pod, right? Yeah, and then, the Green Bull. You know, exactly. And didn't, didn't really take off until they adapted it and modified it. The other thing is... What you were mentioning about the stability of the aero platform, Molly, and the design of the Red Bull rear suspension that we don't understand yet. We don't know yeah. what's so trick about this thing that is allowing it to to be one of the most stable platforms, even starting in 2022, right? When everybody mm-hmm. else was having the porpoising issues. So there's something going on there that's also enabling that car to extract the maximum performance from the floor. And in this year of 2023, you can't go in and modify your rear suspension. No. So that's going to be a 2024 upgrade probably for other teams if they do figure out what's going on back there and they can combine that with what they learned from the Red Bull floor. So I think the gains we're going to see from this are probably not going to be until 2024. There's going to be some marginal gains for teams, I'm sure. I think 2024 will be when we see it, yeah. And even then, there are certain things that you can't do mechanically that Red Bull currently does. It has to do with the shape of their gearbox casing. And it also has to do with their suspension design being pushrod. All of these things can give you more volume to work with in Diffuser that even if Mercedes had a perfect understanding of the aerodynamics, had the perfect understanding of the design of the mechanical aspects of the rear suspension, they, they can't necessarily make it exactly the same way Red Bull does because it's a fundamentally different design philosophy. It'd be like if they're trying to oh, say, oh, we're going to do pull rod down the front suspension. It's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> I mean, you don't understand that well enough to actually do that. But yeah, it's very exciting. It's a very cool thing to investigate. I, I'm very interested to see how many more trick things a trick is probably a bad word it's a trigger word for some people <laughs> no i think trick's a good way i like i i like trick in this in this connotation i think it works i i've always liked it but some people uh have have a negative connotation with it in, in either sense we know that we lost so many of the fancy tools that we used to have suspension tools in the previous area inerters you know gas springs a lot of complicated things so you have to be a lot more deliberate in your design of your suspension. You talk about things being made for aero performance. Well, sometimes making the best possible mechanical platform is the best way to get to aero. And I think one of the things that we really should eventually get into is how the ride height and the compliance of the cars actually is different between them because they have fundamentally different designs. Um, as I said before, I'm very excited about, about learning about these things. And one thing I do want to mention is that if those who have access to F1 TV, F1 TV Pro, they have fantastic you know tech demos. Albert Fabrega was one of the people who does analysis for F1. He had a very excellent scale model of the Ferrari side pod, you know, showing how the flow looks like going around the outside and the exterior. But one thing he mentioned that was very important is that we still don't know for sure if Ferrari has this S duct that we you know, were talking about in the beginning of the season. We know that there's an inlet under the front of the side pod in a smaller one that in principle you would use to extract some of the boundary layer out of a sort of a sensitive region and maybe you would eject that over the top of the car with some of the cooling flow move it to a more desirable place but we still don't know for sure what that internal geometry is we don't know for sure if Ferrari even has an s duct Mm -hmm. we see an inlet 
we see an outlet. We're trying to figure out what the connection is between the two based on what the potential flow paths would be. So that was just something that we should also keep an eye on. As we said, we're just about to get into the Spanish EP weekend. Again, it's the first true traditional circuit that the teams will be going to the season. Previously, we've had street tracks or, or new tracks. Spain is one of those tracks where you have tons and tons of data. Teams have run thousands and thousands of laps around that circuit. But we do actually have a change for this year. You know, hold for applause. Finally getting rid of the ponderous and always uh, anti-exciting final chicane that we had in the circuit to Catalonia. Interestingly enough, you know, the closest version of the circuit that we had going up to this version was actually probably in 2003, because in 2004 and 2005, they changed the turn 10 to be very, very tight. And before that, it was a sort of a long radius corner. And they also ran the final two corners without the chicane. So that is the closest version of the circuit that we're going to be having now. But technically, it's not exactly the same, because when they reprofiled turn 10 in 2021, they actually moved it to be a little closer than it, than the old version, the wide radius version was before. It looks very similar to the, the old version, the one that we didn't used to use, but it is actually a, a slightly different curve. And so technically on paper, we're actually racing on a brand new circuit configuration for the first time. It may be an excuse for F1 to break out some of those uh, new track record graphics. We haven't seen those in a, in a little while, but very excited to uh, go to Spain for some of the first upgrades of the season. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm really excited. It's going to be Across two series, two new track weekends, side note, IndyCar is going to a brand new track, so it should be fun for both series, but I'm really excited to see what is coming in Spain. I think they're predicting like seven and a half second lap time increase, potentially with the deletion of the chicane. Um, I'm very excited to see how the drivers handle that now, the faster lap time, what this is going to enable overtakes and, and passing opportunities and places to slip up and all that good stuff. How many of these drivers who are very used to the chicane reference points are, are going to maybe forget it's not there now. So I think that it, it's going to be really, really interesting and really fun to see what, what new space brings. Yeah. And we also know Barcelona, I mean, the Spanish GP is one of those tracks where tire strategy and tire Mm -hmm. degradation always ends up being a big deciding factor as well. I mean, when you have a chicane like that, you have a tendency to have a bit more rear limiting kind of a behavior, right? Because you're slowing down for the chicane and then now you need to accelerate out of it, get a good exit for the pit straight. Now with that gone, it's going to be way more front limited. And so through that section, through sector three, which means that uh, yeah, teams that maybe don't have as much uh, of good tire performance are potentially going to struggle. I'm keen to see what goes on in qualifying because it's, again, one of those tracks where you've got to target that lap in a certain way to maximize the time through all three sectors. Because if you attack sector one and sector two, you're going to die on sector three. You're going to have nothing left in the tires. So what are teams going to do now? It's a whole new setup. So this is going to be brand new for them. So, you know, all the free practice, quality simulations are going to be really important, I think, for this. The loads are getting to a point where Pirelli has decided to move forward their 2024 slick tire design to Silverstone and actually introduce them there to handle the loads. Part of that process is actually giving the teams access to them, two sets of extra tires in FP1 and FP2 of this new specification tire that will be introduced proper in, in Silverstone just to give them some data to work with because this particular change is kind of necessary. People have been asking me, our hard tires are already lasting too long. You know, why are we having even harder tires? And I just wanted to emphasize the distinction between the compound 
of the rubber of the tire and the actual construction of the tire, the part that's actually maintaining structural integrity. The changes that are being made are not to do with allowing the tire to yield a reasonable amount of grip for more time. It's about preventing them from disintegrating in the middle of a high-speed corner. So even if it sounds like you know a boring or a non-exciting change, this is actually something that's safety critical because we don't want to have a situation where you know half the field doesn't finish because the tires explode. Yeah, for sure. I mean, may- maybe to expand on that a little bit more as well, it's uh, the-, the makeup of the tire itself. I mean, the carcass of the tire obviously has a incredibly proprietary <laughs> makeup and design that Pirelli like guards like the recipe for Coca-Cola, you know? I mean, but but a few things that are very important, right? The direction of the plies, the orientation of the plies, how they lay them up, all those kinds of things are, are directly relating to the rigidity, the strengths of the tire itself. And as you mentioned, Bryson, you know, the chemical makeup of the compound itself, which then determines what's called the durometer of the rubber itself is what's going to dictate how soft the rubber is. So that's exactly what durometer rating is of a rubber. And actually the test for durometers, they just take like a little piece of metal and they pretty much indent it and see how far the indentation goes over a known load. And then that tells you what the durometer rating of the rubber is. And the softer rubber you have usually has more oils in it, which is why it's actually softer. And so that's going to be a, you know, a much softer rubber than something that's a harder rubber. So what you're mentioning, Bryson, exactly, it's the plies, it's the it's the rigidity. This is why Mario Isla is more than welcome to come join us on the pod and explain this. But I do not buy that it's not changing the performance characteristics of the tire because if you're strengthening it, you're doing something that's going to change the way that it's flexing and how rigid it is. So I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> I mean, my my parsing of the public statements from Pirelli is that you know, obviously if you change the mechanical design of the tire, something's going to change performance-wise. You can't avoid that. It seems to me like they've made every effort to minimize those performance differences and just make sure that whatever the differences are is as min- are, are as minimal as possible. But I agree, there's no way that the performance isn't changed at all. If that was the case, why even test them <laughs> before bringing them to Silverstone? So we can we can talk about that all day. The thing I'll probably end up with on, in Spain is that obviously, you know, I expect all teams to bring something. We don't know what everyone is bringing specifically, uh, except for a few teams. We know that Ferrari delayed the introduction of their new rear suspension after some things were going on in Although they decided to delay it anyway, but they're delaying it. They're going to bring it to Spain. Now they're suspension. They're, they're also going to bring quote unquote visible changes to the bodywork. In my mind, that means that the side pod design is probably going to change a little bit, as well as the engine cover. So I'm very excited to see what that looks like. Down washing. Yep, I think I think the the bathtubs are gone. No, I I mean I think they're still going to retain the DNA of what the bathtub did, you know, with this highly recessed upper surface. But it just seems like that in washing rear at some point is going to become a, a down washing rear, uh, a la Red Bull now and now Mercedes. Mercedes is going to bring some updates as well. I don't know what they are, but we know they're going to be changing that car every time. As we said, the Monaco version of the car was iteration zero of this new direction, and so I expect them to be building on that. The also the other thing that we heard is that Red Bull is bringing something. Helmet Marco said it was experimental super secret or different <laughs> yeah uh, radical in red bull language could mean any number of things but red bull is bringing something to spain we don't quite know what it is but it could be ominous i'm keeping my my hopes low on this one honestly um i think it's just going to be those little few small little tweaks here and there is what i would imagine but you know what if they roll out something cool like the new generation of exhaust blend diffusers or something cool like they had in the past right that would be awesome i mean it, it would be hard given the placement of the turbo and the way the exhaust goes i don't think they could do exactly that but i'm, I'm not going to put it past them 
Yeah, I'm not putting anything past them with an ominous statement like that. There were some uh, listener questions that we're going to eventually get into. But before we do that, I do want to talk about what happened with the Indy 500 recently. Obviously, there are a lot of former Formula 1 drivers and former you know F2 drivers in IndyCar currently. And the Indy 500 is a, an amazing, iconic race. It, it was even part of the Formula 1 calendar. But what's, ex- you know, the thing about Indy is that, you know, it's high speed all the time. And there are no such things as, as small crashes. Um, obviously, there were several incidents on this year's Indy 500. The most alarming of them was an incident between... Kirkwood and Rosenquist, where a collision happened at high speed and a strange angle, and the left rear corner of Kirkwood's car was completely liberated from the car. And in the best case scenario, that's not ideal. You know, you don't want that to happen in any situation. But in the particular situation that we're talking about, it actually managed to completely launch over the catch fencing at high speed. This is not a situation where anyone was hurt. So just want to say right off the bat, but we were lucky, you know, from an engineering side and from a a motorsport safety side, you need to act and behave as if that resulted in a horrific tragedy because it it was sheer luck that it didn't. It, It was sheer luck that it didn't. And so the word that we're getting from IndyCar is that it wasn't the wheel tethers themselves that failed in this incident. Um, people who know will know that the tethers were actually redesigned this year to be able to withstand a maximum load of, I think, approximately 22,000 pounds, if I remember correctly. So it's doubly surprising that we had such a potentially dangerous incident at the very time when the tethers were redesigned. And there's some thinking, you know, that perhaps if the tethers themselves didn't fail, something else might have. I know Molly and I had talked about this previously, that there is a potential scenario here that could explain what did fail if it it wasn't the tethers. Yeah. And that's, it could be the hub. It could be the wheel nut. There's a number of things, but what we were really talking about was, okay, we've improved the strength of the tether to such a point that something else has been reintroduced as your what is considered the weak link in that subsystem that would be the one to fail in the event of an accident like that and effectively could the strengthening of the wheel tether actually weaken the overall system to the point where your weak link is actually weaker than your tether and weaker than the previous tether was so that that was the resultant failure rather than your tether which you obviously don't want your tether to fail anyway you want the system to fail and then the tether to stay on um, that, so there's there's a few things in that system that could fail, but it's that balance of, am I improving the system as a whole or did I improve it and now I've accidentally shot myself in the foot and I've made I've kind of found the butt of another problem by fixing one, I've caused another kind of thing. And, and IndyCar, we, we can keep talking about this, but IndyCar is very, very proactive about this stuff. So I am going to be keeping my ears open and my eyes open to see what like comes of this and what they wind up saying and if there are any fixes that, that come from this as they understand this crash and what happened. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason why things have improved so much is just because every single time there is a serious accident, time is taken to understand what happened and why, and then changes are made as well. And again, we're speculating. We don't know exactly what happened. It could have been a failure of some other point of the car. It could even be an assembly issue or manufacturing issue in putting the car together. We don't know quite yet, but we have a high degree of confidence that whatever the issue actually was, it will be investigated and the sport will become safer as a result of that. Yeah, the sport does pretty extensive postmortems on things and they'll, they'll impound, they impounded that and I believe the car to go ahead and study all of that and they'll, they'll take that all back and study it and then release it. You would take the car, wouldn't you? Yep. Yeah, they would take everything. If you have indentations and you have tire marks, you can get the angle of the wheel when it hit the car. Mm-hmm. And you can, maybe if you like look at how far back it went, you can reverse engineer what impact forces were. 
they might have actually taken Rosenquist's car too and done a reconstruction. They they have been known to do that, I believe, that they will reconstruct. There was a report somewhere that when Robert Wickens had his crash at Pocono, they laid every piece of that car out like they were the NTSB with a down airplane. Like if you ever see the airplane wreckage laid out mm-hmm. on the floor, they literally will do that with wrecked cars, just lay everything out and do these really detailed postmortems. And they'll, they'll do virtual reconstructions once they've studied and scanned everything and looked at all of it to try and reproduce it, understand, reverse engineer solve the problem, design it out and and keep going. So they, they might have also taken Felix's car. That's That would be a theory as well that they took the, the Rosenquist machine too. Early on in my career, I'd spent some time doing failure investigations and you use something called a scanning electron microscope to look at... SEM. Yeah, SEMs to look at like failed surfaces and based yep. off of the characteristics of the surface, you can tell if it's a ductile failure, if it's a brittle failure. Or shear. Yeah, or shear. You can We're tell initiated. if there was a, a crack, an initiation, propagation point. So yeah, for sure. They take all the failed components and they and they look at them very closely to basically pull all the pieces together. And before I forget, I do want to wish uh, a speedy recovery to friend of the podcast, uh, Steph Wilson, who was in a slightly, you know, unfortunate incident with Catherine Leg earlier in the weekend or the previous weekend. That just shows how how dangerous some of things these things can be. The safety mm-hmm. systems that we design to improve driver safety are incredible. They're fantastic. They're they're ingenious actually, but they're not foolproof. They improve mm-hmm. your chances of of avoiding an injury, but they're not a hundred percent. So anytime someone can walk away from an incident or or recover from an injury. We're very happy about that. And I just wanted to, to take a second to wish stuff well. Yeah. You know, there there was a, a situation with IndyCars finishing where there was an incident, you know, with only a couple laps to go. They were having the cars go through in caution, but then they decided to red flag the race with only two laps left, which is not necessarily ideal. There were some debates on whether or not IndyCar could do this if it was breaking any rules to avoid having an extra warm-up lap. But it, it seemed to be the case based on some of Molly's research that they were allowed to do that. And, and they do have every, they have the right to take every effort to, to restart the race and finish it under green flag conditions. There, there are some weird comparisons to Abu Dhabi 2020 in F1, but it just doesn't seem like those are appropriate. No, they're not. And in IndyCar, they don't have a, a like a guaranteed green flag finish like NASCAR attempts to with what's called an overtime rule, which where if you have something like that happen with less than if you basically if you have not taken a white flag at any point, NASCAR will initiate the overtime if the caution will run you to the end of the race to fix a wreck or it's like a, you haven't taken a white flag wreck and they'll then do a two lap shootout. You'll come around. The first one will be your first lap. Next one will be last lap. Next flag ends it. IndyCar doesn't have that. IndyCar has a rule in their book. It's 7.2.10.3 that says officials will make reasonable effort to restart a race stopped by the declaration of a red condition if the conditions warrant. So that's what you were saying, Bryson, where like they have the right to assess that. And that's all that it says. And IndyCar for a long time has had the stance of We are going to make every effort to finish this race under green or a race under green. Whatever it takes, we're going to try it. In this instance, the the way that people are debating this and people were kind of up in arms is typically they take a warm-up lap and then the next time by they'll go. And that would have actually ended the race. So what IndyCar did was they just took them out and it was one to go. Once they got back to the flag, took them out of the pits, came around the pace car, pace car came off and they raced the last lap in a single lap shootout, which is not precedent, but I'm not sure that there has been where they've done it like that before, but they have every right to do that. And they're allowed to say that they can do that. And that's where there's this debate of reasonable effort is, was that reasonable? Because 
tires up to temp, where the, the driver's able to get brakes up to temp, there were some situations that maybe could have led to further wrecks, or it could have been dangerous, some of the drivers were saying, but it was within every right of IndyCar to do that, to try and restart the race and, and do that as well. And there's plenty of precedent of them re- trying to restart a race and end it under green throughout the time of them having this stance. So it, it kind of falls under that. And there were some, I think the comparison to Abu Dhabi is unjust given that rule. And you can, de- I, I agree that the debating of reason- reasonability and the subjectiveness of that is valid, but I think it's that's what it fell under. And I, I appreciate Indy Car trying to end the race under green. We got a phenomenal single lap shootout to the end. Joseph Newgarden won. Yay. And I was really excited about that. But I think that it was it was justified to try it. And I think they would have been they were damned if they do and damned if they don't, honestly, because you've just ended the Indy five hundred under caution. And then obviously there's gonna be hurt feelings if you you run run it and you're done. You run it and go, you know? So I think that they did the best. They made the best possible decision for the race. And and given the long time stance, it would have been a a large pivot from where the series had been kind of positioned for a while. And I think there's ample, you know, textual justification for what they did as opposed to what Michael Bassey did, in in which case there are rules explicitly for when the safety car can come in and how many cars can unlap and all other things. He just violated completely. So the comparisons there don't really seem apt. We do have a couple of listener questions we can kind of round out with. There are quite a few of those. I'll just start with the the first one is from uh, Rep B. Jackson. He asks, is there a piece of technology out there, you know, besides Doppler radar that could help teams during races better strategize around pitting or not pitting when, when rain is forecasted? And, you know, I'm sure you guys have thoughts on this as well, but right away, one of the first things I remember in Formula One when I first got into the sport, which was a, too long ago, was that this is an incredibly advanced, technologically mature sport, has some of the greatest engineers in the world. And sometimes, the best way to get the information you want is either sticking your hand out in the pit lane or just paying someone to go off the track a couple of miles in the appropriate direction and tell you via the radio whether it's raining or not. There are, of course, complex technologies and, and weather systems that are used to evaluate you know, what's going to happen and when. But given how changeable the conditions can be and given how much time you can lose on the wrong tire if it rains, sometimes the best you can do is, is just make a decision based on the information that you have. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, pay someone to go out to uh, a part of the track where you think the rain's going to come from. But even that has limitations as to how effective it could actually be. Yeah, that's where having a spotter in in other series comes in handy because they're they're positioned either high above the track in a certain location, or if you're at a road course, you have three or four spotters in multiple locations. And spotters can help you with that, um, which would be like somebody paid to to hang out at a spot at track. And I'm sitting over here, I'm chanting, I'm like, pit row, pit row, (laughs) like a strategy AI software that somehow is integrated with weather models and, and can do predictive um, strategy calls that way. We talked about pit row on episode eight for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, which is a AI strategy caller that is used in NASCAR. It uses machine learning. But um, I think that aside from doing something really advanced with like weather trends, whereas like a good example of Monaco, I could plug into my my machine and teach it that the rain always comes from this direction in Monaco. What's the likelihood given today's forecast and everything? And it, and it could turn around and say, well, with the weather trend, I'm, I'm going to modulate the... I, I'm going to run the model and it'll tell me that I need to pit on lap 54 for enters. It'll predict and aside from something very sophisticated with AI and, and machine learning and, and teaching it, aside from that, I don't know what else you could do. 
Yeah, there was a really cool kind of online webinar that Bernie Collins did for Formula One on a system called RaceWatch. I don't know if either of you caught that, but it was really enlightening for them to to be able to see how they determine, you know, what their loss will be whenever they decide to pit and where the gaps are and things like that, running different simulations. Yeah, if you could integrate that with some sort of a, a rain prediction system that would also say, you know, you should pit based off of, but the, th- the crazy thing is like a- everybody becomes a meteorologist during race weekend, whenever there's a <laughs> chance of rain, it's really funny. Rain events are just large scale fluid dynamics. So I also kind of consider myself a meteorologist as well. But at the end of the day though, it, it, there's always going to be like so much inherent wrong decisions being made based off of weather. And that's, what's cool. I love it. You know, that spices up a race. I really think that part's interesting. You know, this, this is so complicated. I mean, it's hero or zero stuff. Every time you go out there and changeable conditions, you have to you have to make a decision at the end of the day. And whether you can justify it after the fact or whether you, you know, made the right decision or the wrong decision, it's largely not even up to you <laughs> based on the information that you have. Yeah, let's go to the next question. So I'll, I'll read that one off. So this one comes from... Kabilo Cello. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, the question is quite complicated. So this one's really going to be, I think, for all of us to try to see if we can figure this one out. Could you please run us through the legality of the cis wing with the horizontal side pod in- inlet? I thought you could only run the cis wing with a vertical inlet. I recall this from Kyle Engineer's uh, video on the Mercedes 22, the W13, regarding the, the wing mirror state, basically, and the cis wing legality. So I, I guess I'll start. I- I also kind of remember it that way that it, if if you look at the regulation volumes that this is part of the the mirror wing stay and this is why it was legal. It's a, this is a very interesting part of the regulation volumes because right there you also have what's called re- RBW rear bodywork side pod S pod and then it kind of runs into uh, this sort of wing mirror space as well. So. That's the only thing I can think of is they found a way to kind of integrate this into the S-Pod regulation volume as well. But I I don't know enough about like single section, dual section, single curvature. It's incredibly complex in that side pod uh, regulation volume, how this one. So I'm just waiting for Kyle Engineers to put out another video on it. Yeah, or or someone with access to all of the detail that like we don't have in the public access um, regulations and models and boxes. Kyle's been excellent. He's been a, a very useful source, someone who has experience not only in an F1 team in general, but actually designing aerodynamic services that const- are constrained by the FAA regulations. I think a part of this has to do with what is the actual longitudinal offset between what we call the cis wing and where the new side pod is, and are they touching or not? And wh- whether those two are touching could actually make a big difference in terms of defining what the sections are. And also, weirdly enough, how you name the shape in the CAD. Like what, what, what name you're giving to this object and, and, and what volume it, it sits in has a big impact on the effective legality of it. So the short answer that I have is someone who's smarter than me and has more time to think about this, <laughs> yeah. thought about the right way to integrate this and not be you know hit by the FAA with an, with an illegal car. So given the scale of the structural changes and everything else going on with that car, there's no way they would gamble on something that was possibly able to be interpreted as illegal. So, you know, they've done exactly what they need to do to to race a car. And teams don't work in a vacuum either. For anybody who doesn't know this, they are very closely in contact with the FAA. The FAA is usually 
largely aware of what they're doing, what they're trying. They'll be like, hey, we're going to do this. And or here's where things are with their projects. So it's not like they work in, in secrecy totally and in a vacuum totally and then turn around and surprise the FIA at scrutineering. Sometimes they do. But if they're playing especially gray, but um, the, the this likely would have been cleared. And I think teams will go and even ask the FIA, is this legal? This is what we want to do. Is this okay? And the yes. FIA will turn around and say yes, or they'll say no, and it's you have to go back to the drawing board sometimes. But there, there is often a communication loop with the FIA of things like this, and so I, I would bet that this was one of those. That is true. Of course, there are caveats there too, just because we think yes. back to the Mercedes DAS system, which was a hundred percent, you know, told by the FAA what was legal, and eventually teams were able to, you know, say, "Hey, listen, can we outlaw this in the future?" You know, and the fact that that even changed is something that's relevant. But I completely agree. There's definitely communication with the FAA and the teams to be able to establish what's legal and and what's not. I think we've kind of already touched on it a little bit, but um, it's from Super K, and it is how much can the teams learn and implement after seeing the RB19 floor. I love the emphasis on the end. I mean, like like I said, you're you're not allowed to use you know photogrammetry software to exactly replicate the shape of someone else's floor. And even if you could, it's not going to be guaranteed bolt-on performance. I think the most important thing is to understand what the shapes actually are, and then figure out what you can do with your own car. The lessons that you can extract from that for your own car without exactly exactly replicating the shape. As I said before. You're limited by like the mounting points to your floor, how high you can make it, how big your gearbox is, your rear suspension design. All these things are constraining what you can actually do with your own car. It, it seems like the most important thing is to figure out what someone else is doing. Now, does that mean that Mercedes and Ferrari have an exact duplicate of the RB19 in CFD right now and are running it? You know, maybe. <laughs> they probably have something close. I mean, if, if, if amateur people in the F1 tech community can come up with their own 2022 cars, it wouldn't surprise me if, if you know, the professional teams have their own version of someone else's car they're trying to simulate the performance of. But at the same time, the question is, what can you put on your own car? And importantly, how quickly can you do it? People don't realize that these floors are not like five or six pieces that are like put together. They're largely like one big piece, a massive bit of carbon that has, you know, instrumentation and other things in it as well. But it's not something where you can just like replace the back end of it and put someone else's on. I was going to say, but it's actually more complicated than that because when you when you talk to the teams, they're not even working. They're working in sections of the floor. So, you've got a team that's actually dedicated to forward floor. You've got a team that's dedicated to mid floor, rear floor, to wing, to edge wing. They're all working separately and they actually only bring their models together once they compile everything and run the full CFD. So, they're actually working with the flow profiles the interface flow profiles as input and exit boundary conditions. And they're working in a vacuum. They are working in a vacuum for their section, but they do bring it together later. So that's actually something I learned when I was talking to a few people that were connected to one of the teams. And the other thing recently that I was told is that I know of two teams that have 8K photos of the RB19 that have been studying them for at least a day. I know that. Full day. <laughs> but it's probably way more than that. Weirdly enough, the only cars who we didn't see the floor of was the uh, the AMR23. Right? We, saw, yeah. we saw pretty much everyone else's floor except for theirs. And so argue and this is something that people don't get also from anyone is that you always assume we only care about the top team we only want to look at the floor we only want to look at the, the hardware of the top team that's who we're copying from and everyone else is taking it but people are coming up with inventive things up and down the grid i mean i think of back last year when aston martin introduced that sort of double tea tray bib vein at the front of the keel that we saw in the launch video of their first car. And eventually Red Bull adopted it, Mercedes adopted it, Ferrari adopted it. And Red Bull still has that today. 
they still have that today in the RB19. Yeah. <laughs> so it isn't simply the case of we're only looking at Red Bull's floor. You know, we're looking at everyone else's floor because there's always left time to be gained somewhere. Yeah, everybody's looking at everybody. That was the thing, like when when you, you read all the, you know, conversation that was going around about people saw the Mercedes floor, people saw the Ferrari floor, the RB19. Oh, well, nobody's looking at Mercedes or Ferrari because they're off pace. Nope, not true. Everybody's looking at everybody's floors. The Alpine floor was lifted up in Baku. We saw that. Actually, they're cooking something because when you look mm-hmm. at that floor, it's not basic either. Yeah. So there's like, there's stuff going on there as well. Yeah, it seems like Alpine is very confident in the quality of their upgrades. I mean, we know, you know, you know, Laurent Rossi was in the news for saying some incendiary things about his team recently, but the team is is delivering some impressive results, and they seem to believe that their Monaco form wasn't necessarily a one-off. I think they're going to be competitive in Spain as well, so I'm, I'm very much looking looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I think our next question is from uh, Ethan Cadden, and he asked a very interesting question, actually, which is that, do you think the new generation cars will ever get as fast as the old generation fastest cars, which is, you know, year 2020 and if so or if they if they can't get that kind of performance you know how close can they get i i actually would would answer this question in the affirmative that eventually it will be possible to develop cars that are just as fast as the 2020 cars and even though the cars are heavier and even though they're perhaps slightly bigger and even though we shifted away from the mechanically optimal 13-inch wheels with large sidewall tires to these 18-inch wheels uh, with significantly stiffer sidewall tires, even though all those things are working against them, the trump card of the current cars actually is the new floors, the ground effect floors, the three-dimensionality of them. We've mentioned several times on this podcast that generating downforce from the floor is more efficient than generating with a, a big rear wing and, and other things. And given that the three-dimensionality of the floor allows you to have a much lower minimum pressure, you know, much more suction under the floor than you could get previously with, uh, with the flat bottom floors. It suggests to me that the ultimate downforce potential is actually there. And remember, what matters for performance isn't just raw downforce in terms of the numbers of it, but how efficient is it? How much drag are you creating for producing that downforce? If you can reduce the drag and improve the error efficiency, you can get a better lap time. On top of the fact that raw downforce is also relevant to how much mass the car has. So if you have a very heavy car, with a lot of downforce, it's not really going to do you a ton of good. So if you can reduce the weight of the cars in the future while keeping the same amount of downforce, which is something everyone wants anyway, if we can get that weight limit down, that'll bump the performance ceiling up even higher. So I, I suspect that we will eventually create cars that are faster than the 2020 cars. Again, they'll be pegged back through regulation changes, you know, so the, the sidewalls or the, the, the floor, just so that Pirelli doesn't go insane. <laughs> Pirelli is trying to design tires that are physically possible and don't cost $30 million per tire. So I imagine there will be some soft limits. I mean, we've said before, you give engineers free reign, they will build a car that a human being cannot drive. So there needs to be some restriction there. But I do think that the upper limit of performance that we will eventually see in the current generation cars, and again, later in 2026, will actually surpass what we saw in 2020. Yeah, actually... This are we've talked about this before that engineers can design a car that you physically cannot drive, right? That was confirmed by Adrian Newey during the recent uh, what's it called uh, race racing uh, the bull t- talking or- bull. Talking, talking Bull, Bull. <laughs> yeah, Talking Bull podcast. <laughs> that's, the most, with, that's the most cheeky, cheeky yeah. <laughs> name for a podcast ever, by the way. Yeah, with, with Nicola here, yeah, he confirmed it. So it's it's true. But he did mention something very interesting about 2026 regulations, saying right now that the cars will be slower than this generation of car. I don't know where that's coming from, if he's privy to any sort of discussions around the aero. We haven't seen anything around the aerodynamic portion of the 2026 regulations, but... Uh, 
possible there's some conversations going on with the teams about some things they're thinking about doing, uh, which would be really interesting. So we might take a step backwards again before we take another step forward. So we've got the last question here, uh, which comes from Here is a Thought, which is, I I love that name. (laughs) Such a good name. Mercedes invested a lot in tight packaging for the of the PU, which was likely to enable the zero pod solution. So it's what they need to do, right? We talked about what reaction engines and what they're doing with the cooling. Is this wasted on the new concept? Does it hold them back? Could they shave weight now that they have side pods to use for more conventional cooling systems? Um, the short answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, the short. I mean, they they had to make some extraordinary mechanical compromises, not only as you say in the advanced heat exchanger systems that reaction engines developed for them, but also in just the the configuration and the layout of the coolers. You know, there's they shifted to a much more centerline cooling concept than they would have had with a traditional side pod design, and by definition, that's going to raise your center of gravity. So, so not only is it modifying the pipe work and the ducting to actually get the the fluids, uh, the liquids and, and fluids where they need to go, but also it's a higher center of gravity. Which which affects uh, your handling performance adversely. So if you knew beforehand that you had all of the space available at a traditional side pod, you could put the actual cooling there and, and lower center of gravity, which would improve the handling of the car. I do know that one of the reasons why Mercedes took so long to make that big upgrade to this uh, W14B that we're talking about is because there were changes to the mechanical internals of the car to be able to actually create those side pods. It wasn't just a question of you know, where are the hard points for mounting the bodywork and the panels? They literally changed around the radiator configurations into a much more traditional uh, setup. So it, it's a it's a big change. I do feel like they've gotten a lot of that back. The biggest thing that I would take away from Mercedes changes this year is, yes, they're trying to make as fast a car as they can this year and, and fight for whatever results they can. But the truth is, what they're doing is positioning themselves for a fight in 2024. And in order to do that, they need to know a bare minimum set of things works in the current car. Mechanically and aerodynamically in this new concept, they need to make sure that they're actually going in the right direction because if they aren't, there won't be any opportunity to recover really before the the new regulations start in 2026. And as Dr. Rob said, we don't know anything about the Arrow in 2026 yet. We haven't heard anything. So so my, my thought about this is, Yes, Mercedes is definitely driving a a compromised car. I'm not sure I would call it Frankenstein's monster right now, but it's getting kind of close. It certainly isn't the optimal design they would choose if they could start with a clean sheet design. I was, I was going to agree with you, Bryson. I think we've talked about the cis wing, right? Whether or not they find some gains from that, you know, as you mentioned before, I would expect that probably it goes away. But there, there's a few other things as well that I think is holding them back a little bit in the, in the design of this car. If you if you ask me, I think this year is a really great setup year for 2024. Honestly, they're going to learn a lot about this design, this concept. They're going to be able to refine it, develop it further, and get to a place to where they're starting 2024 on a very strong foundation. And if there's one thing that we saw with the RB18 to the RB19, it's that you don't have to drastically change things in between seasons to go faster, right? You can find ways to be better with the concept and the design you have. So if this truly is the baseline that Mercedes settles on and they don't go backwards, but they go forwards, then I think they can make a strong push in 2024. 
Yeah, and I was just going to throw out that they, they've obviously made some changes and they've had some learnings, but it's just kind of remind everybody we're in a freeze for power units and there are certain things that Mercedes will not be allowed to touch without a reasonable, I don't want to say reasonable reason, but reasonable reason and reliability or safety that the FIA would have to approve to make upgrades within certain areas of their power unit. So the changes that they did make were, were areas that they were allowed to touch and adjust. They are likely studying not only what they're learning from the car, but what could they maybe improve for 2024? Could they try to ask for something if it is a frozen component or from what is available to them that isn't included in what's called the power unit homologation? Uh, ta- it's like a whole table that says if it's frozen or not in, in the regulations. Are there anything in those like not included in the freeze that they could also continue to get gains and improvements out of for going forward to have a, have a fight in 2024? So that's one too that they'll probably they probably are and still looking at what what they could get. Yeah, I mean, I'll be really interested to see what Ferrari does. I mean, depending on what you're reading about what people are predicting for the future, right? I think Aston Martin's in a really strong position because their team is obviously very strong. They've taken an incredibly big step this year, but I feel like they understand their car pretty well also because they're pretty darn consistent from race to race, which tells me they know how to set it up. They know how to run it. It's kind on the tires. And mm-hmm. from everything I'm reading in you know various reports and, and articles and stories, they feel like th- that they have quite a bit more development to go. So what they do in this year also, and Fernando talked about it after the race in Monaco, really putting a lot of emphasis on, well, this is a great year and everything is just kind of icing on the cake for 2024. So I'm thinking they're really setting something up for 2024. So everybody's going to need to bring their A game. Red Bull cannot. I mean, Red Bull's yeah. going to struggle a bit this year, right? Uh, the the um the aerodynamic reg- uh, restrictions that they have are going to inf- impact them later on in the year. At some point, they're going to have to decide where they should focus to 2024 and stop developing 2023. So all these other teams are going to make this big strong push, and they can't be starting on the wrong foot. Ferrari's got to find something. You know, whether that begins this weekend in Barcelona or not, they've got to find something. Aston is in a strong place. We talked about Alpine having a strong foundation, seems to be developing and growing. Mercedes now taking a new direction. It's going to be really interesting. I'm excited for the rest of this year in 2024. Yeah, I was going to say I'm 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 very excited about the way the rest of this year is going to go. I know there are fears, growing fears, that Red Bull could walk away with every single race in the season. And while I agree the car is a very dominant car and the team is operating at a high level of performance, never in the history of the sport has a team won every single race in the season. And in fact, there are more races now than there ever have been before, more opportunities for things to go wrong. So I, I do think there's going to be a very interesting fight for the rest of the, the field to be able to beat Red Bull at least once on somewhere. And we're seeing a very interesting and a very close fight happening between Aston Martin and Mercedes. Aston Martin does have a better car than Mercedes, as evidenced by Fernando Alonso's consistency in his performances, but they're kind of running a one-man or one-and-a-half-man team at the moment, and Mercedes is picking up steam. So if you have an advantage over the field, you have to press that advantage while you have it, because it's not going to exist forever. I'm very excited about the rest of the season, very excited about Spain specifically. There's going to be a flood of technical updates I'm sure we're going we're gonna to get into, but very excited for the rest of the season, and definitely excited for the way this will lead into 2024 as well. I'm also looking forward to seeing not only what the kickoff of upgrade seasons 
bringing in Barcelona, but what this will mean for the trajectory for the rest of the season. Because I think that this this and Silverstone are two of the big ones for upgrades and tech and, and where we'll start to see teams true form as their pipelines start to fill in with their developments. So I'm really excited and I can't wait to see what the season holds. Yeah, absolutely. Totally echo what you're saying there, Bryson and Molly. It's going to be an exciting race, uh, if anything, to see how the track changes, you know, affect the, the race as a whole. But also, you know, in light of all the tech upgrades and tech uh, changes that we're going to see, how does this shuffle things in the order a bit? And what does this do to maybe give, like we said, a team like Ferrari, maybe it, possibly a new direction? Definitely, we've got the Mercedes with a new direction. And what will the second half of the season look like? Remember, we're going to have a re- set of the wind tunnel and CFD uh, allocations what the end of June right so mm-hmm. based off of constructor standings so you know I know Mercedes and Aston are quite close at this moment so there could be a bit of shuffling that goes on there as well possibly yeah it's gonna be interesting yeah, we're definitely going to be covered that as time goes on. Thanks, everyone, for joining us and listening to the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts, as well as follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We do post things there occasionally, some tech bits and some fun tech bites. That'll do it from us, and we'll see you guys next time.